Welcome to the most listened to golf in the world, the Fairways of Life show, on air, online, and around the world. With the most candid interviews. The mind can play a tremendous influence on your performance, whether it be golf or you name it. I don't care what it is. If you go in with the proper background, it doesn't have to be perfect, but you go in with the proper background and the proper mental state, the odds are you're going to come out successfully. Taking you beyond the ropes. I refuse to give up on life, even though it's been it's been bumpy. You get back up and do it. I know you can. You owe it to yourself and you owe it to your friends to be the best person you can be. Unforgettable stories. Say Elaine for us. Yes. <laughs> Elaine, you're out on your patoot. Go spend a week in the Yakavongo Delta. <laughs> a bridge to the past. Years and years from now, Mr. Palmer, what do you want the legacy of Arnold Palmer to be? Well, uh, I suppose just that I have made a contribution to the game to help make it a little better. Here's your host, New York Times best-selling author and Golf Channel's Matt Adams. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the program. Absolute delight to have your company from wherever around the world you are joining us today. So one of the things that's so much fun about doing this show, and it's been the case from day one, is that we have the opportunity, collectively, to hang out with greatness. And it's fascinating to me that, now granted, we're a sports program. But greatness has all kinds of different forms, right? In and out of the world of sport, obviously. But there are traits to greatness that seem to run. It's a current that runs through whatever field of endeavor that you're defining the same. Well, I had a chance to speak with a Hall of Fame member himself with Michael Chang. And I think the content of what Michael had to say about his own career and how it is applicable to all sports, golf inclusive, but the sport of life as well, is absolutely fascinating. Rare is the opportunity to speak with a true legend in their respective craft. Now, how do you define the same? How about a member of their sports hall of fame, International Tennis Hall of Fame member Michael Chang won 662 matches. 34 times single title champion. He made it to the Grand Slam semifinals eight times. Grand Slam finals four times, including his 1989 French Open title, which still stands out to this day as one of the greatest all time for a whole variety of reasons, which we will get into. Incidentally, he still is the youngest male winner in tennis history at 17 years and some days. In 1996, he reached number two in the world ranking. He was a member of the 1989, 1990, 1996, and 1997 United States Davis Cup teams. He won at least one ATP title for 11 straight seasons. He retired from the game in 2003, but in many ways, I think retired is the wrong word to use because... He may not be competing at that same level, but in the game, he is very, very much still involved. Michael Chang is joining us now. Michael, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's an absolute delight. So your story is an interesting one to me, and I wonder if you would allow for a second. I want to talk to you about your parents. I want to talk to you about your dad and your mom and and where they came from, and how that path 
led to you being born in Hoboken, New Jersey, and then eventually moving to Minnesota, then eventually moving to California, everything that goes into it. But let's spin back the years and go back to your dad's life and your ancestral roots. Could you talk to about his path? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, my mom actually, uh, um, my grandfather on my mom's side uh, is actually a diplomat from, um, from China to the Dominican Republic. Um, oh so gosh. they had uh, actually come over from uh, from China, and um, my um, uh, actually it was kind of interesting because she was actually born in India. My mom is actually Chinese, but she was born in India. Um, she actually met my dad in um, in uh, New York, and my dad was actually in New Jersey because of school. Uh, so he was at oh. Stevens uh, Stevens uh, uh, University, and. Um, so they had met, uh, strangely enough, on a blind date, and um, you know, I ended up hitting it off, got married pretty quickly, and uh, you know, that's that's part of the reason why I was born in uh, in Hoboken, New Jersey. Were either of your parents athletes of any note? My dad was actually a very good athlete. Um, certainly didn't play, you know, at a professional level, um, but he played at a, a collegiate level uh, basketball. Um, oh. got into, uh, tennis. Um, actually my mom was actually the first one to start tennis. My dad picked it up from there and just fell in love with the sport. And, um, you know, when I was about, um, five, six years old, you know, we would go out, uh, my brother and I to, to watch my dad play in these company tournaments. Um, he was working at 3M in, in St. Paul, Minnesota. And we go watch mm-hmm. him play all these company tournaments. And, uh, um, my, my mom was, basically saying, you know, we, we come to watch you play and, and you love tennis so much and the kids are getting older, they have way too much energy, why don't you introduce them to tennis, you know, since you love the sport so much. And, and that's really how we, we started in, in the sport of tennis and, uh, you know, and obviously I've loved it ever since. Well, I, I, I want to circle back around to that because I know your dad did a lot of coaching of you in the early days as well. But for a second, I want to talk to you some more about your Chinese heritage was it something in your life, Michael Chang, that you were always conscious of? Was it something that was always important to you? Or at some point, do you think that you experienced, if I may, a cultural awakening? Um, that's an interesting question, um, actually, because, uh, you know, I grew up in San Diego. Um, you know, playing a lot of junior tennis, there were very few Asians playing tennis at the time. Uh, now, obviously, it's very, very different. Um, you know, it's, uh, you see a lot of Asians, uh, a lot of young Asians playing now. Um, but when I was growing up, very, very few. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, for me, you know, growing up also in a school that was um, also had very few Asians, um, I don't think I really totally understood, um, you know, my cultural background. And believe it or not, I don't think I really, really embraced it uh, actually until after the 89 French Open, uh, strangely enough. And, um, you know, by that time, you know, uh, the 89 French Open has a lot of, um, you know, a lot of historical uh, elements to it. Um, you know, part of it is, is obviously becoming the, the youngest male to win a, a Grand Slam tournament. But there was a much bigger reason, I think, for, for the French Open happen the way that it did um and that reason i i have always felt in my heart was that you know in the middle sunday of the french open you know each grand slam being a two-week tournament 
the middle Sunday, um, the uh, the event in Tiananmen, uh, the crackdown actually happened the middle Sunday of the French Open. So, you know, obviously there were a lot of uh, Chinese students lost their lives. Um, and, you know, my mom and I certainly, if, if I wasn't out there practicing or playing, you know, at the French Open, we were glued to the television set watching the events unfold over there. And, you know, by the time the, the last point was hit, um, you know, it started to dawn on me that, uh, you know, being Chinese, obviously being Chinese-American, uh, you know, I've always felt like, you know, God's purpose in all of the the French Open happening was really to put a smile upon Chinese people's faces during a time when there wasn't a whole lot to smile about. Um, and, you know, certainly helped me to, to embrace and, and, uh, and understand, you know, why I was made the way that I was. And, uh, and, uh, certainly, um, you know, from there had, you know, many, many opportunities to play tennis, uh, in Asia. There are a lot of doors opened up opportunities for me to play. And, uh, from there, obviously I, I learned more and more about my culture, you know, more and more about you know, appreciation for, for being Chinese, for being Asian. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a whole new ball game from there. I do want to talk to you in some specifics about that 1989 French Open, but I want to follow up on something you just said, Michael Chang, about how with all of the events at Tiananmen Square and, and the massacre that took place and the emotions that were associated, obviously, along with that, and you said that you hoped that your title would, would be a cause for a smile on the face of Chinese people. Did you find in your ensuing relationships and growth and understanding of your culture, did you find, in fact, that it did put a smile upon their face? Did you have people come up to you and say, that day when you won the French Open meant something special to me? Yeah, it was it was incredible because, um, you know, I had so many people come up to me and say, you know, either that they were there or they watched it. Um, you know, I know a lot, a lot of people in Asia were, were watching, you know, who is this young, you know, Chinese boy, teenager, you know, playing in a, in a sport that, you know, very few Asians are playing, uh, doing very well, you know, upsetting, you know, some of the best players in the world. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day on Sunday, you know, hoisting up the trophy. Um, mm. So there was a lot of intrigue. There was a lot of, you know, questions. Um, and, uh, you know, and it really, uh, <clears throat> you know, gave me, uh, I think in many ways, uh, you know, a platform also to, uh, to be able to, to talk to people, to be able to encourage people, to be able to, you know, hopefully inspire people in, in some way. Um, and, uh, you know, I think in, in, in a lot of ways also, uh, tennis, all of a sudden, the, the popularity took a whole different level um, in a lot of those Asian countries. Michael, that 1989 French Open, well, I mean, when you look at, I mean, how many years ago we talk about now, decades ago, but when you look across the spectrum of sporting events, whether they're decades or, or what have you, multiple decades or what have you, that particular event had so many elements to it that, how do I phrase it, seemed to border on the surreal. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, and I want to get into the details of it, but I'm curious if you feel the same way because now – 
here we are in this day and age when we look back on it and think about it, all the considerations as young as you were, what you experienced, what you did, how it played itself out, the emotions that were tethered to it, that which you have revealed was also part of your motivation and what you hope motivated others because of what you did. All of these elements, did it feel in any way surreal to you? I think that um, in certain aspects, as the events were happening, I don't think I quite realized what was taking place. I mean, you don't necessarily, you know, consider things like, you know, you're playing number one player in the world, you know, Yvonne <laughs> Lendl, he's a three-time champion. You know, you're not really thinking about these things when you're in it. Um, you know, you know that they're, you're cramping, obviously, and, and you're trying to get through the match, but you're not you, – you, you, all of the historical things and all of the, um, the events that are – you know, what people are thinking, you don't think about. You're only thinking about trying to get through that particular match. Um, but I think in retrospect, in looking back, you know, obviously, you know, there are very unique events. They're not typical matches that I played. Um, you know, obviously the match with Lendl, um, you know, I had severe cramping. And uh, after my match with Chesnikov in the, uh, in the semifinals, um, you know, my match with Edberg, I was down two sets to one. Fourth set, I saved like... I saved like 12 break points in that set. I mean, it was, a, it was ridiculous how many break points I saved. Uh, and I had like one at which I converted. I mean, it was just, you know, a lot of, a lot of interesting, you know, scenarios that in many ways it's almost like, it's almost like a parent saying, hey, let me read you this fairy tale. Let me read you this yeah, story. Yes. It, yeah. You know, in many ways it was kind of like that, but it actually took place. But, but you could read it and most people would think, oh, this is just a nice, you know, you know, kind of fairy tale type of story, you know. Um, what, what, but it see, was what I can't figure thing. out, I can't figure out, when you were 17 years old and change, <laughs> do you think in, in some way, because you're 17, dude, you, what, you didn't know what you didn't know, right? And because of that, the things that you did, the way that you reacted, the way that your mind worked was such that, you weren't cluttered. You went. And, you weren't encumbered by all of the other things that that a person maybe with more experience and more years who would just have conceded and folded up their tent. You didn't do any of that. You you carried on through it all cosmically to close out. Was was that any element of it? Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right because um, you know it was interesting because I don't recall anybody ever asking me the question saying, "Hey." Do you realize that if you win the French Open, you'll be the youngest male ever to win a Grand Slam, you know, ever? Nobody yeah. ever asked me that. And I, maybe part of it was because, you know, a lot of those matches, I was just so much of an underdog to win. Nobody maybe actually even thought about that. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of these things certainly didn't, you know, didn't come up. And it allowed me just the opportunity to be able to say, hey, you know, I'm so excited to play. I'm um, so excited to be out there on center court uh, to play against the best players in the world, to, to, to be, have the opportunity to, you know, kind of live out a dream that I've had many, many years when I was young and pretending that I was playing in the French Open final. I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, in many ways it, it, it was, you know, surreal. And, uh, and it was just pure excitement. There was no, there was no fear. There was no doubt, um, you know, about any of the other things. It was just excitement. Um, and I think that in many ways, uh, you know, did allow me to be able to go out there and, and just play very freely. All right. So 
Let's go ahead now to the fourth match. You're playing the number one player in the world. You, you, you've touched on some of the on, on the big points. Ivan Linda, right? And he goes up first two sets, 6-4, six, 6-4. Four, six, four. He breaks your serve in the third set. Now, I know you fought your way back. I know that you experienced the incredible leg cramps, which I have to ask you, incidentally, Michael. Had you ever experienced them to that degree before? I have, actually. So that one, in certain aspects, was actually good because um, I knew what cramping was. I knew what severe cramping was, and I knew what to expect. And, um, you know, I, I knew um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a new feeling for me. So I think that being under that, I had a little bit of experience in how to handle it, even though, you know, my mobility wasn't there anymore. Um, you know, if I went up hard for a, a serve or, or ran really hard, my, you know, my legs would, would lock up. So, right. um, but I had, you know, actually experienced that before. You're up two to one in the fifth set. How close did you come, Michael Chang, to cashing it in? Did you ever consider I'm done and I'm going to call it. Yeah, I mean, that was a very, you know, important part of the match right there. Um, you know, I think I started to kind of a little bit compromise my, my mentality. I started thinking to myself, hey, you know, who am I kidding here? You know, I'm, I'm 17 years old. I'm playing Yvonne Lendl and on center court. You know, I'm cramping up a storm here. I'm not going to win this match. So, you know, in my mind, I was kind of thinking, well, what's the difference between just calling it a day and quitting and saying I can't play anymore versus finishing the match and still losing. Either way, the result is the same. So that started to, to kind of dawn on me. Um, you know, I was thinking, oh, it'd be better to be able to get in the locker room, you know, get some treatment, hopefully get rid of these cramps a little bit sooner. Um, and it was interesting because I actually started to walk toward the chair umpire um, to actually basically tell him, you know, I, I can't play anymore. And I remember him looking at me, and it was interesting because when I had gotten to the service line, I had an unbelievable conviction. Um, I, I felt like I felt like God was telling me, Michael, what are you doing? And it was almost what, what dawned on me was that if I were to quit there, every other time that I was faced with either a similar circumstance, a similar trial, um, whether it was in tennis or whether it was in life, if you quit, if you quit the first time, the second, third, fourth, fifth time that happens, it'd be that much easier to quit. And uh, for me, it was kind of like, do I really want to be known for that? Because you know, on tour, everyone's known for different things, but you don't want to be known as a quitter because what happens is you get into a tight match, you get into a long match, and if people think you're a quitter, they're not just going to fold over; they're going to try harder because they know you have quit in you. So I did not want to have that. And I was like, okay, all right, let's not, let's not have that as an option. I'm just going to go out there, play point by point, leave the winning and losing into, into, uh, in the God's hands. Whatever happens, happens. But let's finish this match. You know, that's the goal. Finish this match as best as we possibly can. And so I just started taking things point by point from there. Uh, strangely enough, you know, I started to hit these, like, high moon balls um, just to try to buy time to get back into the middle of the court to get back in position. And so that was that was enough, an actual strategy that you executed at those at that time. Yeah, because I couldn't really hit with Yvonne. Because if I were to hit regular shots, you know, he hits me one corner, hits me another corner, I'm dead. There, there's just no way I'd be able to cover the court. But strangely enough, he he started moonballing me back, 
Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was really odd. You know, he didn't try to drop shot me. He didn't try to angle me. And I think his mentality, I remember him saying later, was just to try to keep me out there for as long as possible and just thinking sooner or later I'm just going to keel over and just and, and not be able to play anymore. Um, and so when he started to hit these lobs, anything that that I had, anything that was somewhat short, I mean, I would just crank on, just go for it. Um, and, and it was weird because I started making a whole lot of shots. Um, and, you know, I missed some, but I was making a lot more than I missed. And um, it just became, you know, um, I don't know, I can't even explain how, how I started winning points. Points started turning into games. Um, I was breaking him, you know, and then at 4-3, I was up. You know, I couldn't serve because uh, I couldn't go up for my serve because I was I could cramp in my legs. My first serve was going like 70 miles per hour. And I was about to lose my serve again being up 4-3. I was down 15-30, and I was, it, it crossed my mind. I said, i got to do something different here. So without much thought, spur of the moment, just I just threw in an underhand serve. Uh, Come on. A ton of side spin on it. And, uh, you know, Yvonne kind of kind of was – taken by surprise and, and uh, he hit the ball and and he came in he had to come in because my serve was you know was so was short and was you know kind of you know coming into his body and i ended up hitting a passing shot up the line that clipped the top of the tape and ricocheted off the top of his racket and from then on you knew that it was not just a physical battle but it was really a mental battle too um what that and, mental battle though yeah. didn't that mental battle ultimately break him down I think in certain aspects, he, it was interesting because, you know, Yvonne is the, is the ultimate professional. Um, he is never underprepared for a match. Um, he works extremely hard, probably one of the hardest working players ever um, to, um, to grace our tennis courts. And, um, but, you know, this is one of those things where, you know, you cannot, um, you know, you cannot uh, train for. You know, how do you train for for dealing playing against somebody who has who has cramps, uh, somebody who's injured, you you can't train for that. Um, and it became a psychological kind of battle for him. Um, and um, you know he probably didn't play the way that he should have played, uh, thankfully. But um, you know it was just a, it was just an unbelievable match, and it was a match that uh, you know had all of the elements of kind of like a, a David and Goliath, and and um, you know it was just incredible to. Uh, to be a part of so and you ultimately you brought him down with the sling in four hours and 37 minutes and I do recall famously when it was all said and done Michael Chang the way you broke down at the end the the emotions was was that was that a combination of everything the the physical discomfort the what you had accomplished just kind of putting it all together a, a gumbo if you will yeah I mean it was just it was a you know it was a very emotional match, um, you know, very mental match. It, it was a match that, uh, you know, um, yeah, it was just hard to, to, to keep control of of, uh, of what had taken place. Um, you know, I never would have guessed, uh, you know, to even have the opportunity to, to play against Yvonne, and, but to play him under those circumstances, uh, those circumstances, um, you know, it was, uh, it, it was just, it was overwhelming, so... So when you face Edberg in the final, then, I mean, did you come into the Coliseum almost like a giant killer? Um, I actually had some confidence actually going in to play Stefan. 
Uh, mm-hmm. I had never played him on clay, but I had played him in Indian Wells uh, on hard courts uh, earlier that year. So, you know, there were other times that I played Stefan and I lost him, but I beat him for the first time in Indian Wells, and I beat him playing a certain style, and I beat him pretty convincingly. I beat him 6-2, um, So I was going basically going there with the same mentality, like I'm going to play him, try to play him almost exactly like I played him in Indian Wells. Um, and, um, you know, I came out, you know, just smoking, uh, won the first set six, one very easily. And then, you know, Stefan being the champion that he, that he is, um, you know, I didn't play a bad second and third set. He just, he just raised his game. Um, you know, won both the second and third sets. We were in the fourth set. And like I said, the fourth set, you know, I'd saved like 12 break points. Um, how that happens, I, I have no idea. Um, I ended up breaking him the last game. I got down a break in the fifth set. Um, the first game I got broke. And then um, by the middle of the fifth set, um, I could tell he, was, he just ran out of gas. Um, he, was just, he was just exhausted from serving and balling everything, um, you know, over five sets. And uh, ended up winning that, uh, that last set 6-2. Um, but, you know, some of the shots, I mean, you know, I get returns down at his ankles, and he's still knifing those balls in the corner. Um, and to do it on clay, uh, you know, just goes to show you, you know, what an incredible serve volleyer he is. International Tennis Hall of Fame member Michael Chang, our guest. Michael, when you're traveling, obviously you, you had spent a career of, of doing a tremendous amount of travel all around the globe, still do. When you travel... Say you're sitting at the counter getting something to eat, something to drink, what have you. You're sitting next to somebody, and they turn to you say, what do you do, what do you do? And they turn to you and say, what do you do? What do you tell them? Um, I mean, a lot of times I tell them I'm, I, uh, you know, I coach on the ATP Tour. Um, I'm involved in a lot of, uh, of um, you know, ministry through our Chang Family Foundation. Um, obviously, uh, you know, full-time husband and, and father um you know it's just a whole it, it kind of depends on i guess a little bit on who i'm t- i'm speaking with uh you know I'd, obviously i don't go in there thinking that people you know are going to know necessarily who i am but sometimes they do and they do. um you know i just feel like uh you know with the great sport of tennis um you know and golf being very similar um it's just such a global sport um you know that you have so many great opportunities to go and and, um, you know, experience so many different places, so many different cultures. And, um, you know, uh, you're just very thankful for, uh, for the opportunity that, uh, you know, that tennis, uh, you know, allows for us. I want to get into the transition from tennis as a career and from one of the best in the world to the hobby of golf and, and maybe in some ways that it provides you the competitive outlet and all the rest. So I'll get in that in one second. I want to go down that road, but I want to go down another for a second because you just used the word great. You said the great sport of tennis. How does Michael Chang, a member of the international tennis hall of fame define greatness? I think, um, you know, I think in many ways, um, it depends also on who you ask. Um, I I define somebody who is a champion uh, not only somebody that goes and, and wins tournaments, um, you know, and I think that we've labeled a lot of different champions, but I think that in certain aspects, sometimes people, even though they were number one, maybe they won a lot of titles, 
sometimes people wouldn't necessarily label them as champions. And I, and I really think that a champion is somebody who not only is exceptional at their sport, um, but is also highly respected um, and also understands that to be the best in their sport is, is not just that part of it, but it also embraces the importance of being able to understand that, you know, that you have a platform, that you are a role model, um, that, uh, that it is important to be able to, to take time out for people. Um, you know, and I think to, to obviously earn the respect of, of the press, earn the respect of fans, but probably even more, maybe most important because the guys that see you day in, day out, in and out of the locker room, uh, are the guys that you compete with. Um, to be able to earn their respect, um, I think says a lot about you. Um, you know, I think that, um, that, uh, sometimes unfortunately people don't embrace that. They, they just go about their business. They don't care about anybody else. They don't care about doing anything other than just going out there and trying to prepare for their matches. You know, they don't want to sign things. They don't want to take pictures. They don't want to, you know, and unfortunately after they're done with, uh, with the tour, um, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of times people forget about them. Um, but you get a, you know, you get a champion like, you know, like Roger Federer, for example. I mean, the guys won more Grand Slams than anybody on the men's tour. Um, but yet, you know, situation like, you know, James Blake, for instance, tells me that he had, he had gotten injured, a very bad injury, um, down in, I think it was in Australia, one of the, one of the tournaments. And he got one note from one player wishing him well, hope he, hope he gets well, you know, hope he gets uh, uh, back on his feet, back out on the tour. And would you, would you not have guessed it was from Roger Federer? Wow. Um, you know, that type of, that type of, uh, of uh, consideration, it goes an incredibly long way. Um, and, I, and I wish I, you know, I think that in certain aspects, I, you know, I tried to sign a lot of different things and, and try to, uh, take pictures and stuff like that. But I actually, I wish I would have done more of it. Um, and I think as a coach now and as somebody who's, you know, obviously grown up and more mature, um, you know, I realize that something, you know, as simple as a smile um, can not just make a person's day, but but can really, you know, impact a person for a very, very long time. Um, and I, I wish that, um, you know, sometimes some of this younger generation would, would know that and understand that, that, um, Yes, tennis is about, you know, going out there and becoming the best that you can be. But also know that, hey, you've been given this talent not just for your own purpose, but you've been given this talent to make an impact, you know, upon the world and to be able to inspire people with it. Um, and that's really where it's going to – that's where it's going to leave a lasting impression. Um, you know, people are going to forget your, you know, your great forehands and backhands, but, you know, when you touch a person's life, I mean, that will stay with them for a very, very long time. And and I think the perspective and in, in understanding that, um, you know, for all sports, um, you know, is is very very important. I, and uh, and I think a lot. Of, I wish a lot of younger players would would understand that and, and embrace that a little bit more. Michael Chang is my guest. When you talk about talent, Michael, I'm curious in your particular case, what percentage of your talent, to use your word. What percentage of your talent was God-given, and what percentage of your talent did you just dig out of the dirt, in the, to use a golf term, or to dig out of the clay, if you please? 
how would you define the percentages of each? Well, I feel like I feel like everything that I have is is from the Lord. I, I feel like all the talent that I have is is God given. But in all the talent that you've been given, you can't expect that talent to to take you as far as as you want to go or as far as you're supposed to go. You know, it, it, things don't come like that. Um, you have to put in your work. You have to do what you need to do um, in order to make the most out of the talent. Um, a great example is, is Andre Agassi. Um, Andre Agassi is an unbelievable talent, talented tennis player. Unbelievable hand-eye coordination and, uh, you know, just an exceptional tennis player. I don't think he actually put in the hard work, actually, until later on in his career. And when he when he combined both the hard work and the talent that he was given, all of a sudden you saw results that that were, you know, that were phenomenal. Um, and people have often talked about, you know, what if he had put in what if he had put in the hard work uh, when he was younger, you know? Um, and if you were to ask any of the best players in the world, no matter how talented they are, whether they're Rafa Nadal, you know, Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, I'll tell you what, these guys work so hard, um, unbelievably hard. Um, you know, golf is the same way. I mean, you take somebody like Gary Player, for example. Um, mm. You know, he says, well, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. You know, <laughs> and you know, he, he will go in there knowing that he wants to know that, hey, everybody in this field, I want to I understand that, I worked harder than anybody else. And that in itself gives you a certain amount of confidence to be able to go out there and, uh, and perform your best, to play your best, to expect good things. Um, but, uh, you know, talent can only take you so far. Um, you know, we've had obviously other players that were extremely talented, um, maybe didn't realize the, hard, the importance of hard work. And by the time they realized it, their prime was done. And, uh, you know, and unfortunately, you know, you, you see that and, uh, and you're always asking yourself, you know, what, what might have been, what might have been. Um, we had this one very young, very, very talented player. Um, and I remember having this conversation with some guys in the locker room. And uh, we were all talking about saying, boy, man, if he just put in the hard work, can you imagine how good this guy's going to be? And we're all like, yeah, it's unbelievable how, how good he could be. And we all looked at each other, and we're all like, well, you're not going to tell him to work hard, are you? <laughs> and then we're all like, uh, I'm not going to tell him. Are you going to tell him? So I'm not going to tell him because um, we didn't want to deal with that. We didn't want to have to face him, you know, with all of his talent and all of his hard work because we knew that would just be a nightmare, um, you know, on the tennis court. But, um, you know, it, you need both. Um, you know, and I have the utmost respect for, you know, players that maybe – don't have as much talent, but boy, they just work their tail off, and they just get the most out of out of all that they've been given. Um, it's hard not to have the utmost respect for those guys. Michael Chang, what is the Chang Family Foundation? Uh, the Chang Family Foundation uh, was started in uh, 1999, and uh, basically, um, our foundation we use the avenues of sports. Um, basketball, uh, tennis, volleyball, um, basically as a means for outreach. Um, you know, we partner with a lot of different, uh, um, and, uh, basically go out and, and try to outreach the community, um, through our tennis program that we have, 
uh, we're able to raise up money for, for local charities. Um, one of our big uh, charity producer um, is a, a tournament that we have. Um, over the last few years, we've been raising money for, um, for Homemade OC, uh, which they build homeless uh, shelters for uh, homeless people in, in Orange County. And, um, you know, it's just been great to be able to, you know, to give back to the community. And, and uh, you know, we just feel like we've been so blessed through the sport of tennis. And, uh, um, you know, it's just a, a fun way to be able to, um, you know, make a difference and, uh, uh, you know, and continue to, to have a voice out there. To make sure that we give voice to the sponsors that help you do what you do, Michael Chang, uh, I have, is it Uniqlo, uh, Nike, Shrixon, Tag, and Nissan Noodles are all sponsors of yours? Yeah. Um, yeah, they've been great. And, uh, you know, it's been um, certainly a lot of fun to work with, with all of them. And, um, yeah, obviously, uh, you know, always great to be able to work with people that are, that are like-minded. You're, you mentioned golf a couple of times. I know that as a, as a, a, a former world-class athlete, now coach, Golf has been an outlet for you as well, and you even sent along to us before we started about some some notes about where you're playing and you get to play with your brothers sometimes and the equipment that you're using. How important, how much fun is a game of golf for you as, as a former professional athlete to get out there and still be able to do it? Yeah, I mean, you know, golf is great. Um, you know, I think what makes it uh, so much fun is that, you know, besides the sport itself, I mean, I really enjoy, you know, just being out there, the fellowship, um, you know, just to be able to, you know, relax and, and um, just enjoy the company. Um, you know, it's something that, uh, you know, is very different from, from tennis, I think, in many ways. And I think that's why so many tennis players gravitate toward it. Um, you know, tennis is always very intense and, and uh, you know, just, um, you know, just sweating and running and all that stuff. And, I think, you know, most tennis players were like, ah, we're, we're kind of tired maybe of chasing the ball. It's easier just for the ball to sit there and just say, hey, hit me. Um, and then they realize that it's actually not that easy. It's actually more frustrating because you don't have anybody to blame but yourself. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I picked up golf toward the end of my tennis career. And, um, you know, it's, a, it's just a great way to be able to, uh, um, you know, spend time and, and – um, you know, with family and with friends, and obviously if you've got a, you know, a beautiful setting, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just so enjoyable. International Tennis Hall of Fame member Michael Chang's website is mchang.com, and mchang.com will take you directly to the Chang Family Foundation page as well if you want to help out with their noble efforts. Michael, thank you for the time that you have given us. Thank you for the memories that belong in the hearts and souls and so many of what you accomplished and those that you competed against. We really do appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. My new book is called The Golf Round. I'll never forget 50 of golf's biggest stars recall their finest moments. Look, we're going into the holiday season. I hope this is the perfect gift for the person in your life that loves the history of the game. History like this, the 1978 Masters. Well, first of all, I'm seven shots behind Tom Watson. And my son says to me, he says, Dad, you're playing so well. If you putt well today, you can shoot 65 and win. But it's not easy to shoot 65 at Augusta. Anyway, I'm out in 34 with a bogey. And I come back in 30 
I actually touched the hole three times. But thank goodness I didn't because I would have never been invited back to Augusta. The book is called The Golf Round I'll Never Forget. 50 of golf's biggest stars recall their finest moments. I hope you enjoy it. You can pick it up wherever fine books are sold, including barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com. FootJoy, the number one out brand in golf, ensures that you can make every day playable with performance gear to handle any weather condition. All FootJoy products are designed to provide the best golfing experience regardless of the conditions. Every piece of FootJoy gear goes through years of testing and validation to ensure the ultimate in golf performance. Trust the brand that has been number one forever. Learn how you can make every day playable at FootJoy.com slash M-E-D-P. Boyne Golf provides the ultimate world-class golf destination with 10 championship-caliber courses spanning three resorts. Centered in Michigan's northern Lower Peninsula, the courses are the products of some of the game's masters, including Robert Trent Jones Sr., Arthur Hills, and Donald Ross. From the all-inclusive vacation packages, elite instruction with the Boyne Golf Academy, tournaments, and so much more, Boyne Golf truly offers an unrivaled Michigan golf vacation experience. Just log on to BoyneGolf.com and take in all the splendor that is a golf experience unlike any other. TheGolfTravelGroup.com is a luxury golf tour operator that specializes in custom travel itineraries to Scotland, Ireland, England, Wales, Iceland, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and more. Guaranteed advanced tee times, incredible accommodations, airport meet and greet services, private guided tours and private drivers, all in luxury vehicles, and they have a staff that's been doing it for Ever. TheGolfTravelGroup.com. Tick-borne diseases like Lyme disease, which will have more than 7,000 new cases per week this season, and biting bugs like mosquitoes that could be carrying West Nile virus or even Zika, are threats to everyone, but in particular to golfers. Stay safe with serious protection from Ranger Ready Repellent. I use it because it works. It will not stain your clothes. It doesn't contain toxic deke, and it's available in multiple scents, even an option for no scent at all. Whether you like boating, golf, gardening, hunting, whatever you do outdoors, protect yourself with Ranger Ready Repellent. For more information, go to rangerready.com. The U.S. Open, golf's most storied championship, returns to the iconic Winged Foot Golf Club. Next June, see firsthand the remarkable moments, the energy, the excitement of the 120th U.S. Open Championship. Don't miss your chance to be here next year, June 15th through the 21st, 2020. Tickets on sale now at usopen.com forward slash 2020. Hey, my new book is called The Golf Round I'll Never Forget. 50 of golf's biggest stars recall their finest moments. Moments like this. The 1973 U.S. Open. Here's Johnny Miller. We got a letter also on Saturday morning that said, you're going to win the U.S. Open from some guy in Iowa. And I'd never got a, a letter that that's all it was. They didn't sign it, nothing. It was just from Iowa. You're going to win the U.S. Open. So it was sort of an interesting experiences that led up to that uh, winning that Open. Uh, and, and the round itself was sort of out of nowhere because it just was a, a perfect round of golf. I mean, it literally was a perfect round of golf. The book is called The Golf Round I'll Never Forget. 50 of golf's biggest stars recall their finest moments. I hope you enjoy it. You can pick it up wherever fine books are sold, including barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com. It's time for you to discover Streamsong, a new kind of resort that takes the everyday ordinary to the absolutely extraordinary. 
three internationally acclaimed link-style courses by golf architecture's iconic foursome of Gil Hans, Tom Dope, Bill Kaur, and Ben Crenshaw that provide a golf experience distinguished as unlike any you've ever had before, with undulating fairways navigating through wild grasses and deep water ponds and lakes, towering sand dunes to find the unexpected experience of playing golf at Streamsong, the ultimate legendary golf destination set apart by the unexpected. Streamsongresort.com FootJoy, the number one outer brand in golf, ensures that you can make every day playable with rain jackets for all weather conditions. New to the FJ Performance Outwear lineup this year is the all-new DryJoy Select LS, the lightest, most waterproof garment FJ has ever produced, setting a new standard in rainwear. Amazingly, it's actually lighter than a golf shirt, but still fully waterproof. You can shop now at FootJoy.com M-E-D-P. BenHoganGolf.com is where you can go to see the beautiful product that's being produced right now, bearing the name of the legend. You know, when he founded the original company in 1953, Ben Hogan said he did it, quote, to design and manufacture the best golf clubs in the world, end quote, and that is exactly what their mantra is today, only it's going directly to you, not through retail stores, so they're saving that 40%, 50% retail markup. You can get the best, and you can get it directly from their master craftsmen. Log on to BenHoganGolf.com now. If you're a golfer or enjoy activities outside, you are at risk. The risk of Lyme disease and other illnesses are a national threat. Add in insect-borne illnesses like West Nile and Zika. Ranger Ready is insect repellent that's serious protection with premium wearable scents and clean, non-greasy formula. Ranger Ready is the best insect repellent available, period. Safe, 12-hour protection, nothing comes close. Log on to rangerready.com for more information. What's your bucket list destination? Where have you always wanted to go? What's the number one thing that holds people back from doing that? It's fear of logistics. I don't know where to stay. I don't know how to get tea times. I don't know where to go. I don't know who should take me there. Well, I'll tell you who knows the answer to all those questions. TheGolfTravelGroup.com. That's why the Fairways of Life show has aligned ourselves with these experts. And is there some place you want to go, like the Open or a President's Cup or a Ryder Cup? They can take care of that as well. What is your golf bucket list? Where do you want to go? Do it with TheGolfTravelGroup.com. 